going to write a tagline for Randy and Kelsey. Probably say something like this. Randy and Kelsey Bolander in hot pursuit of the knowledge of the holy. And one thing about Randy that really impresses me is his desire to know God and to just dig in deep for more knowledge. But Proverbs 19.2 says, zeal without knowledge is not good. And so what, you get here, what you're going to get here today is knowledge along with zeal. And I hope that your eyes will be opened and your hearts will be encouraged to dig deeper yourselves. So, Randy. Good afternoon. You can talk. Good afternoon. See, there's always the people that are going to talk whether you tell them to or not. And then there's the people that aren't going to talk no matter what you tell them. So now we're all talking. That's good. My name is Randy, and uh, as Tracy said, Kelsey and I are on staff here at IHOP. We have four children. Jackson is 13, who's around there he is, waving, hair flopping wildly. Um, and Grayson behind him doing bunny ears. Grayson's nine. Zion is five, jumping maniacally. And Zoe is three months old and doing nothing, which is less than she was doing at 2 o'clock this morning. Because we were kind of up all night with her. We're staying in a hotel over at Marriott. And um, it was so funny. Zoe was up three or four times during the night. She's just at that age. And our boys this morning were like, that's exhausting. I was like, boys, that's our reality. That's what mommy and daddy do every night right now. Uh, we've been at IHOP a little over three years. We're serving on a couple of leadership teams and uh, working with FSM some, doing some teaching there. I also give leadership to the four internships and direct the marketing department. So our big uh, claim to fame is the big one-thing booklet that you got, the the 70-some-page booklet with all the directions and everything. My team put that together, unless you found a typo. In which case, I've never seen that lousy book in my life. Uh, we, we got it yesterday. It was the first time I'd seen it after working on it for months and months. And the uh, first thing Kelsey said was, I found a couple typos. I said, don't tell me. I don't even want to know where they're at. I'm sure they're in there. Uh, we have been here about three and a half years. Kelsey was uh, into intercession long before I really knew what she was doing. Um, she is the early adopter in the family by far. I kind of stumbled along in blissful ignorance, too busy with ministry to pray. And uh, God sovereignly invited us into this thing. And what hooked my heart was when we began to see young leaders, 20, 25 years old, leading at a level that I could not explain it any other way than the sovereignty of God. And uh, if you have a young person who's looking at doing an internship here, let me encourage you. You will send them to us, and uh, we will send back someone who thinks like a leader. And that doesn't mean we're going to iron out all their wrinkles and they're going to come back and be the perfect kid. But that means they will think about what it means to lead in a prayer movement. And uh, that is what hooked my heart when I first took a good look at IHOP. The weekend we made the decision to come and join the staff, we were staying with some staff members that we knew. We were visiting the missions base. And our host had invited Bob Hartley to come over and prophesy over us. Some of you may know who Bob is. He works with the Joseph Company. And Bob told him, I can't come. I'm really too tired, so I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to make it. About 9.30 that night, the phone rang. My, my friend answered the phone, and it was Bob. And Bob said, hey, Aaron, your friend you want me to pray for, uh, I had a dream. Is he bald? And Aaron said, yes. He goes, oh, then I better come over. So he drives over and he walks in the house. You have to understand, I have no no grid for this. The, the prophecy thing was not our background, you know. We just didn't know what was going on. And he walks in and he looks at me and he goes, that's him. 
which was a real relief because if I had not been the guy, I'd have felt like a real loser. And so Bob sat down and for about two hours shared things that the Lord had whispered into his heart about us. And it was clearly the word of the Lord. And uh, I was so glad that that came on the heels of us deciding to come here because it wasn't the deciding factor, but it was certainly the the uh, hand of God in the small of our back saying, yes, you're doing what I told you to do. Now, I told you all that because all testimonies have a certain prophetic power on them. God does not give you your story only for yourself. In fact, God gives you your story for the body, and I don't believe we hear one another's story enough. Some of you are at this conference, and you're in a bit of misery here because God is stirring your heart. And your story is being written, and you may even be a reluctant participant in it. As he's writing the forward books of your history, and some of you are even wondering, is this a place where I belong? Is this is what God has called me to be? My advice is for you to find someone similar to you who's on staff here and ask them to tell you their story. Most of these people will preach for coffee. In fact, we're starting a fast on Monday, so they'll, you know, they'll preach for a sandwich or anything. They'll tell you their story. But meet somebody who's, who looks like they're at the same life position as you. If you're a family with kids, meet a family with kids on staff and say, hey, can we just talk and hear their story? And it may allow you to uh, just open your heart to maybe what God has for you. And certainly, not everybody's going to move here. Sounds like everybody in that room is going to move here. But uh, not all of you are going to move here. And that's okay. But if that is what God has in your heart, you want to meet somebody who's got a similar story to yours and uh, just compare notes and allow that to open your heart. As uh, Tracy talked about, we helped coordinating some of the Omega material. If you're not familiar what it is, it's an eight-session DVD course that helps you. Uh, Mike does the teaching, kind of helps you get a, your head around the end times or eschatology teaching. Um, tomorrow afternoon, 1230, we will be having a meeting. If anybody's interested in leading one of those courses, or if you've led a course and you want to do it again and you want some tips, we're going to have some people who have led the course uh, from around the nation to be telling us their story and uh, be doing some giveaways. So if you've got any interest in that, look in your schedule and you can learn a little bit more about that. Digging in this, this afternoon, I have a quick question for you, and I promise not to be one of those irritating preachers that asks questions this whole session and makes you answer. Just one question. Do you believe God has a plan? Okay, general consensus. few of you disagree, but you could be pressured into nodding. Good. All right, we believe God has a plan. This is, is not a uh, trite little question. It's a legitimate question because it will frame out how you think about just about everything if you believe that God has a plan. If he doesn't have a plan, you're off the hook. You're also in big trouble. But you're not held responsible for anything. But if he has a plan, then it's up to us to go, God, what might that plan be? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 19. We'll be spending uh, most of our time in the book of Daniel, but we'll just take a quick nod into Luke 19 for a second. I've always been a big fan of history, of differing times, of what the times say about the people, and what the people say about the times they live in. I've always been driven to understand what God is doing in our time, to decipher why people did what they did. I love reading biographies. I love wondering what God might be saying to a specific group of people that is unique to their time period. I think we have, as a church, have a mandate to ask those questions. Jesus warned one group of people in Luke 19, starting in verse 43. He warned them of what was going to happen because they had not been ardent students of the times and his working among them. 
He says in Luke 19, 43 and 44, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. They will surround you, they will close you in on every side, and they will level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you with one stone upon the other. Why? Not because of idolatry. Also, certainly that was going on. This all would happen, he says, because they did not know the time of their visitation. One interpretation says they didn't know the time of their inspection. They didn't know when God would be looking at them and seeing if they were hearing what he was saying about the time that they live in. Every time in history is unique. Not only are the people unique, although that's very true, but what God is doing in that period is unique. And it is an indictment upon the church if she is not asking God, what are you saying during our time? What is our time of invitation? What is our time of inspection? Last year, I met a missionary who'd spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. And between Christmas and New Year's of 2004, he and his wife were vacationing on a resort on the Indian Ocean. He suffered broken ribs on a motorcycle accident on Christmas Day. And he spent that night in a hospital 30 miles inland from the ocean. Little did he know that the next morning, a horrific tsunami would hit the beach where they were vacationing where his wife and two adult sons were still in the cabana they had rented. And that terrific tsunami would hit that cabana with such a force that it would push it off the foundation. They would barely escape out the roof as a second wave carried them a mile and a half inland. They're grabbing onto planks and pieces of floating trees and whatever they could. They find their way to higher ground. He's there in the hospital. All he knows is the hospital starts to fill up with dead people. And he's asking, what's going on? What's the problem? And the only words that he can understand from the hospital staff, they reference the resort he was staying at, and they're saying, gone. Eight hours pass, and his two sons and his wife make their way, hardly any clothes on their back. They make their way through the crowded streets and the mud and the water, and they make their way to the hospital where he's at. They're alive. And they wander in alive. He's stunned that they were there. Hundreds of thousands were not so fortunate. The best, uh, really most conservative estimates that we have say 280,000 people died that day or a few days shortly thereafter. Since then, scientists have been given a blank check to try and figure out the mystery of a tsunami and how to build a warning signal. And I've been reading in the news about these electronics-laden buoys that they're putting off the coast of California near the L.A. basin. Every quarter mile, these buoys, they're a quarter of a million dollars each. And at best, they will give a 10 to 20 minute warning of a tsunami. You ever been to Los Angeles? You know what a 15 minute warning will get you? That means, this is serious, that means you drown in your car instead of in your house. For a quarter of a million dollars every quarter mile. But why are people so frantic? They are willing to spend anything because they think it's a worthy cause to get any amount of warning that they can get. What has this got to do with the end times? Because God has given us far more than a costly 10-minute warning that's not going to work. He lays out his plan in Scripture deliberately so that you can, on one hand, study it your entire life and continue to peel back layers. Or you can study it for a couple hours and know a lot more than you did if you hadn't studied it at all. Why would you not avail yourself of the warnings that he's put in Scripture? Jeremiah 23.20 It's a bit of a warning and a promise. 
It says, The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. Stop there for a second. His plan for earth involving judgment is as well thought out and as godly as his plan for salvation is. It's that godly. Judgment is as godly as salvation is. But the verse goes on to say, in the latter days, you will understand it, meaning his plan. You will understand it perfectly. See, God does have a plan. You got that first question right. He's got a plan and he's willing to share it. He desires that we would search it out. Now, one of the best places to start seeing a pattern of his plan for the end of the age is the book of Daniel. There are more parallels between the book of Daniel and the day we live in that I could begin to tell you about. It's a great place to start to discover the end times. Five or six years ago, I started reading the book of Daniel in earnest. And I was amazed at how applicable it was to my everyday life. I felt like I would read Daniel and I'd walk away with newsprint on my fingers. It felt that current to me. And at the time, uh, we just had the two older boys, Jackson and Grayson, and they were eight and four when I started my Daniel kick. And I remember reading Daniel 11.32 about people doing great exploits for God. And I remember thinking, if I am not the end times church, then surely those little boys down the hall are. And so we started saying the same thing every night at, at bedtime. I'd say, boys, what do you want to be? And they would say, I want to be a mighty man, and I want to do great exploits for God. Because that's what the promise is in Daniel 11.32. And they would say it every night. Got to be just a habit every night. What are you going to be, boys? Mighty man, do exploits for God. I would be out teaching, and I'd come home. When I'd get home, uh, they would have had to go to bed already, and my oldest son would have written it on a napkin and put it in the refrigerator. Dad, I'm going to be a mighty man. I'm going to do great exploits for God. I'm, Grayson was sleeping one time on, the, on the, my uh, recliner when I came home. He fell asleep there waiting for me. I pick him up, and I carry him down the hallway. You know how your kids weigh like twice as much when they're asleep? I have no explanation for the physics of that, but they do. But I pick him up, and I'm staggering down the hall under the weight of this child. And out of habit, really, I don't expect a response. I whisper in his ear, what are you going to be, son? And without even waking up, he says, I'm going to be a mighty man. I'm going to do great exploits for God. And I used to tell this story, and people would get mad. You're brainwashing your children. I am taking my turn. Everybody else wants a shot out of them. So I'm going to do it. So one night, we're putting him to bed. They're about a year down the road. Grayson is five. And Kelsey's putting him to sleep. And he's agitated about something. Grayson has never felt something a little bit in his life. He's either in the depths of despair or in total euphoria. And he's in angst. And she says, Gray, what's the problem? He says, I just, I just want to have, I just want to do something for poor people. And she said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I think I want to have a popsicle sale for poor people, but I just want to give them the popsicles. And she said, well, why don't, you know, you recognize divine moments with children. And she said, why don't you pray that God would open some doors that way? He closes his eyes, five years old. God, show me how to reach the poor of the earth. Well, when your kids have these ideas, let me tell you something, parents. Find a way to make it happen. So that's Saturday. We buy a case of the cheapest popsicles we can find. We're going for volume. You know, 100 popsicles, like $3. Freeze them. Drive down to a rough park where we live there in Cincinnati where... The homeless sleep under the, the bushes at night. Our church had an outreach down there. We drive up, and I'm telling you, as a parent, I'm nervous. I'm way out of my comfort zone. I grew up in North Dakota. <laughs> Nobody's homeless more than one winter in North Dakota. <laughs> and we pull in, and we stop 
And I can't even get the door of the truck open fast enough. My little guy in the back has grabbed his popsicles. He's jumped out. And he's marching into this. And I'm freaking out. I'm petrified that he's going to go talk to him. And I'm petrified that he won't. And he starts wandering into this group of people and he's yanking out popsicles. Men drinking from paper bags. Here, God wants you to have a popsicle. He wants you to know that he loves you. Here, sir, have a popsicle. Get a popsicle. He hands out 100 popsicles inside of about 15 minutes. I'm trailing him, man, tears rolling down my face. We get in the truck. His smile wraps completely around his head. And I said, how did it feel, Gray? He said, it felt great. I got an idea and I did it. And I thought, this kid is light years away ahead of most of the church. He heard from the Lord and he did it. See, but that's where the church is going. By the end of the age, in the end times, the church will receive dynamic, divine information. Who to speak to, where to go, how to walk it out. And they'll do it, and God will make mighty men and mighty women out of them, and they will do great exploits on his behalf. But here's the kicker. You don't get the divine information if you don't start staring at God's plan now. It's the only way to comprehend the day of your inspection. Look at Daniel 11, starting in 32 to 35. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with great flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join them by intrigue. There are more ups and downs in this passages than you can count. And for some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them and make them white until the time of the end, but it, because it is still for the appointed time. Now, Kelsey referred to the timeline. Many of you grew up with the guy coming to teach at your church once a year with the big timeline that would wrap all the way around the church with all the horses and all the, the horsemen and, you know, uh, all these things. And everybody wants a timeline. They come to these seminars and they want to know, just tell me when it's going to happen and when I need to be ready. You need to be ready now. And I'm not going to give you a timeline because the end times is way more than a series of events. The story of the end times is essentially a story of three tensions. And if you're writing anything down, I'll try and number these so you actually get them all written down in the order that I give them to you. The three tensions of the end of the age, which you need to know dynamically way more than you need to know the timelines. Tension number one, even in conflict... The bride is destined for greatness at the end of the age. Even in conflict, the bride is destined for greatness at the end of the age. There is a measure of debate within the church about how history ends for the church. And the church generally falls into two different camps about the days to come. Both camps have serious errors. The one camp says things are going to get better and better and better and better and the world's going to improve because man is going to improve the earth through technology and the best of intentions will rid the earth of poverty and every other sort of malady to the point where earth, life on earth is so good that Jesus comes back because he just can't resist it. It's like this global gentrification project where everything gets so wonderful, the kingdom of God is ushered in by default. And our churches get so good, we're the most exciting church in town that God himself cannot resist coming. This camp masquerades denial as hope and sells a lot of books. 
That's one camp. Things are going to get better and better and better. There's the second camp that says things are going to get worse and worse and worse because man is entirely corrupt and everything he's doing is corrupt and the earth is declining into a pit of ungodliness. You don't even need to think about it because God's going to yank us out before anything really bad happens. Just don't tell the third world church. Because stuff's bad's happening to them already and they will not understand our theology. This camp prints a lot of bumper stickers. And books that conceivably could fit on a bumper sticker. God looks at these two camps, the camp that says things are going to get better and better, and the camp that says it's going to get worse and worse, and he looks at both of them and says, you're both wrong. And in the parts where you're right, you're right for the wrong reasons. It is going to get better and better, not because we've made it better, but because God is going to send a great revival at the end of the age. And it will not matter if our music is good enough, or if our buildings have the right lighting. And I'm all for good music and right lighting. Then it is also going to get worse and worse, and there's going to be a great apostasy. And many will fall away, and neither of those realities, the great revival or the great apostasy, remove the necessity of God's saving power or His ability to protect the bride from whatever comes her way. First of all, let's look for a moment of the great apostasy. First Timothy 4.11. I'm sorry, 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter days some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We are beginning to see the tip of the iceberg that this apostasy will be in a very concrete way. I'm a big fan of uh, public radio. Not because I think it always has the right perspective, I just makes me think. I think you ought to listen to things you don't agree with once in a while. It's good for you. And so I listen to a lot of public radio, and one of the radio shows that I listen to is called This American Life. Twice in the last probably nine months, This American Life has devoted an hour to a documentary about the change of a theological position of a well-known Pentecostal preacher. When was the last time anybody in the media thought they cared what a Pentecostal thought? But they, they have devoted twice, they've devoted an hour to this guy. Now this man was well-respected, He served as a key leader at a major Christian university. And for many, many decades, he served the body of Christ in a very real way. Hear me now. This guy was a blessing to the the, uh, church. And this man tells his story that he was watching a newscast about poverty and starvation in Africa. And he had an encounter with a spirit being. He says it was an angel. I believe it was a demon. That spirit being told him that belief in Jesus was not necessary for eternal life. And that it was contrary to everything that he'd ever preached or felt or thought or read in the Word, but it was also easier to reconcile with what he was feeling than anything he'd ever preached or felt or read in the Word. And over the next few months, he became convinced that Jesus was not the only way to find peace with God. And in fact, Jesus' blood covered the sins of all, whether they were repentant or not. And in a couple of short months, this icon in Pentecostal circles becomes a universalist. A man who says that all men go to heaven. The secular radio drama about this man is horrifying because it presents him as a saint who is being persecuted by the church for turning his back on Christ. The media treats him with great pity because other Christian leaders have distanced themselves from him as he has embraced this doctrine of demons. 
Now, the good news is that his influence in his city is dropping. His church has gone from about 5,000 to 500 in in the last year. The bad news is he sounds frighteningly rational, and there are a thousand more right behind him. You think I'm kidding. These are forerunners of an, an apostate movement. And they will all not be as obvious as a Pentecostal preacher who tunes his back on Jesus. Some will be humanitarian-minded rock stars with the best intentions to getting people fed, but they'll bow a knee to a false god and tell the rest of us to get over it. Some of them will be politicians who make proclamations that subvert the gospel in subtle ways, like referring to Islam as a noble religion. Some of them will be friends of yours and friends of mine who will not be able to deal with the fact that they cannot hold true to the message of Jesus and please everybody. And they'll walk away from it. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 says, Let no one deceive you, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin or the Antichrist is revealed. So that is what's coming. It's true, in the last days, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and they will carry out great exploits. That is the tension at the end of the age. We stand on the verge of a great apostasy. But we also stand on the verge of a great revival. A great awakening to the truth of Jesus. Just as hundreds of thousands will publicly leave the church, I believe millions will have their hearts awakened to the message of Jesus. Because as the earth grows darker, we will shine brighter than we ever have before. Let me give you three reasons why you can expect a great awakening. We're still under that first great tension, but three reasons why you can expect a great awakening to come to the earth. Number one, first two of these are not going to sound very spiritual, but they're true. Number one, just by sheer numbers, we're going to find a great awakening. We will have a great ingathering of souls simply because the population of the earth is exploding. Creation scientists tell us that we can assume a creation date between six and 10,000 B.C. Assuming the later date, it took 7,800 years of human history from creation to 1800 A.D. for world population to reach one billion. Okay? Almost 8,000 years to get to a billion. According to census estimates, about a year ago, we reached six and a half billion people meaning it took 8,000 years to get to the first billion. It took 200 to get the next five and a half billion. See the growth curve? In fact, the last billion, remember the first billion took 7,800 years. The last billion, 12 years. And it looks, if, if trends stay the way they are, the next billion will arrive inside of a decade. What took 7,800 years, we're adding every 10 years. My point is this. If 5% of the earth came to Christ in 1980, you'd have 50 million believers. If 5% of the earth came to Christ today, you'd see 325 million souls. Almost seven times as many. But there's more at work here than just numbers. We'll see a revival because of numbers. Second reason that we'll see a, a great awakening and a huge number of people come into the kingdom is because of technology. In 1980, or I'm sorry, in 1800, All 50 million of those that we thought might come into the kingdom would have to have been reached through somebody speaking to them like this. 
You know how long it would take to reach 50 million people without any way to amplify your voice? In 2006 and 2007, those 325 million people can be reached with the click of a mouse by a 19-year-old kid on a computer at the library with a free piece of software that he downloaded from a site in China. Never in history have so many, so few people been able to impact so many people so cheaply. In June of 1999, a Northeastern University student named Sean Fanning took a couple of weeks off of college and sat in his uncle's law office and wrote code. He wrote a little simple computer program. When he was done, it allowed he and all of his buddies to exchange music over the Internet for free, and suddenly he had thousands of buddies. The program was Napster. Immediately, it ran rampant all over college campuses, literally shot, shut many college campus computer systems down as kids all over the place started swapping music for free. It also freaked out the records industry as they saw profits go out the window. And in short order, of course, the great American way, they sued him and they shut Napster down. Some would have thought that this meant the story was over and everything would go back to normal, but it didn't. What the recording industry learned in those few short months while Napster went crazy was that people weren't really wanting to buy CDs. They wanted to buy music. And if you could deliver music without CDs, it was cheaper. And you could make a lot more money. Fast forward to April of 2003. Apple Computers launches a program called iTunes in a way that you can buy music online. Within a few short months, they announced they had sold one billion songs over the Internet. One billion songs, a billion dollars worth of revenue, and not one physical thing exchanged hands. What's amazing to this is it all can be traced back to one college kid who skipped some classes. There would have been no iTunes had there not been any Sean Fanning. He fundamentally changed the way the recording industry worked in three years. Never before in history could one person, seemingly an insignificant person, he wasn't royalty, he had no degree, he was borrowing equipment. Never before in history could one person like that have such sweeping effect. Now, here's a kicker. Do we really think technology is an accident? Or do we think that God reveals things to men for his own glory? I think the Internet is a God-given tool. Much of what is, is being perverted today, but the real reason that we have it is just like, why did Gutenberg have the insight to develop a printing press? So that eventually we could print porn? No, so the scriptures could be printed and people could understand them. Why did God allow us to develop the Internet? Because one day a 19-year-old is going to have an idea. And it's going to go out through his fingertips, out over the Internet, and a billion people are going to come to Christ. The great ingathering will be empowered by the Holy Spirit, but the principles will be distributed electronically via the Internet and beyond. There will be a great awakening because of sheer numbers. There will also be a great awakening because of technology. The third one, and by far the most important reason there will be a great awakening, is because of destiny. Remember the promise Jesus made us in Matthew 24? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Imagine a world more densely populated than ever before, more connected than ever before, 
and more exposed to the gospel than ever before. The end-time church will need millions of missionaries to do the discipling. People who will disciple entire nations into the knowledge of Jesus. Remember that earlier passage about the anger of the Lord not turning back until he's executed and performed the thoughts of his heart? Just as the thoughts of his heart include judgment, the thoughts of his heart also include a sweeping harvest of souls. And he will not turn back until he sees it. Just as he's sitting today awaiting the appointed time for judgment, he is also thinking of millions of people who will come to know him during that time. I want to know his plan, his purposes for me and the kingdom, because at the end of the age, many will fall away, but many will know their God and they will do great exploits. And I want to be counted among that number. That's the first tension, that the bride will see victory even as there is difficulty. Tension number two. At the end of the age, there will be a time of simultaneous glory and terror. Say, how can that be? How can things be both full of glory and full of terror? Seems contradictory. Not really. It will be glory for those who have a measure of understanding of the day they live in. It will be terror for those who do not. This is a hard one to grasp, particularly when looking at the current state of the church. Because, very honestly, it's not pretty. And I love the church. We've church planted. We've served on staff at a church. We've pastored. And I love the church. I love various expressions of the church. I have probably a wider tolerance for what the church looks like than you would possibly imagine. But at the same time, I look in the Bible and I see what God told us it would be like, and I see what we're like, and I see a vast gulf between those two. In its Western incarnation, the church is anemic at best, and it's ambivalent at worst. She does a lot of things she shouldn't do. She doesn't do a lot of things she should do. And what she does do that she should do, she doesn't do well. How many of you remember, there's an old skit on TV called Toontz's, the cat that could drive a car, but not very well. Anybody remember that? A couple of people. Toontz's, the cat that could drive a car, but not very well. And in giving you the title of the skit, I've pretty much given you the whole plot. There's this cat. His name was Toontz's. And he could drive a car, but not very well. Right. And every week, it was just a little five-minute skit. You're going, how? This is a whole show. No, it's five minutes. And every every week, they would put Toonses, the owner would put Toonses behind the wheel and send Toonses off to drive away with the most hope in their heart that he was going to make it, and he would go off a cliff or drive in front of a train. Something horrible would happen, and the theme song would come on, Toonses, the cat that could drive a car, but not very well. Right. I say, what are you talking about? The present day church. All of that was honestly in my notes. Uh, the present day church has more in common with Tunces than you could possibly imagine. Weekly, she stumbles off to do what she, what she is in no way prepared to do, taking with her a great many lives. Leaders stand in the driveway, waving all along, praying that this week it'll go better. That this week the people will do what we thought we trained them to do. But most weeks, most of them crash miserably. None of which discourages the leaders for giving the exact same instruction the next week. Church as we know it is not working very well. It's not to say that there are no life-giving churches. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are far too far and few in between. 
For every church that is leading people into a life of wholeness and victory over sin, there are dozens that are keeping people in a spiritual holding pattern. And their version of victory is, next year you're still saved. That's not victory. That's existing. I'm not here just to exist. Things in a Petri dish exist. Things in the back of your refrigerator exist. I've got more of a calling than that. So do you. People find themselves a year or two or a decade older, but not a whole lot wiser and even less victorious than they were when they started. We've made great strides in technical production and great strides in tracking our numbers and great strides in our bulk mailings, but we have stumbled in our work of actually transforming lives. This is not the church that Jesus had in mind. If Tunes was the cat, that could drive a car, but not very well. We have become the church that could save a soul, but not very well. The good news is this is not the ultimate destiny of the church. Scripture tells us that those that have a measure of understanding, says it doesn't even have to, you don't even have to know the whole picture. Could be interpreted those that have a clue. Those who have done the study and can rightly interpret the times will instruct many. Some of you feel you have a call to ministry. And you're already wondering, because it's human nature, how do I make that happen? How do I get an audience? i got to get a card printed. I need a ministry card so I can pass it out. So I can be invited to conferences. Because surely that's the way it happens. Let me tell you what, the way for you to build a platform is not to try and get in front of people. Have something to say. And the platform will find you. The platform may be one person, but if you're connecting with that person, I can point you to hundreds of people who have a platform, but nothing to say, and nobody's listening anyway. You, you become a person with a little bit of insight spiritually, just a clue, and God will provide you the platform. Historically, God has placed people in terrifying positions of influence, circumstances that would seem perilous that suddenly turn advantageous because they were in God's sovereign plan. God used the the jealousy of older brothers, and the the evil of slavery to move Joseph into a role of influence, and eventually he saved the entire Hebrew nation. God used Esther, a girl in her teens, an orphan girl raised by an uncle to save her entire nation. God used Daniel, who was a captive his entire life, to speak into the dreams of a king and shift the politics of a pagan nation. Do you see a terror here? Nobody, do you see a... a, uh, A pattern here, nobody prints a business card. The pattern is terror, captivity, horror, and glory in rapid succession. Now all three of these to a measure are a picture of the end times church that will be hard pressed by circumstances and gloriously victorious in the same time. How do you go from being a person of seemingly insignificance to being a person of great influence? Simple. You'd be one of the few at the end of the age with a hint of understanding of the times and God will pave a way for you to speak to people of influence. I'll tell you a story about my wife. She never tells this story. It's a great story. So I'll tell it. I'm thinking about retelling as if it happened to me, but she's sitting right over there. So it was her story. We're living in Washington, D.C. for uh, about nine months in 2005. And Kelsey had a dream, a very specific dream, involving two senators and their stand for Israel and praying for protection over them. 
She woke up. She said, I think I'm supposed to tell these guys this dream. Now, Washington, D.C. is not New York City. It's not a huge city, but it's not like you see the senator walking down the street and grab him and say, you want to have coffee. But wouldn't you know it, within a couple of weeks, maybe a month, we walk into a friend's house and he is on the phone with one of the senators that she had the dream about. And he tells us, he, t- he tells her, oh, Kelsey, Senator so-and-so is on the phone. Tell him your dream. She grabs the phone, hello, sir. And she tells him her, her dream. And uh, he was a believer. He actually prayed. They prayed together on the phone. But the second one, we had no connection with. We, didn't, we had to look on the Internet to see what the guy looked like. We had no idea what he looked like. So we're praying about it. God, how are you going to open a door? And one of our leaders came to us and said, do you know that he is having a book signing a few doors down from our office tomorrow? Like, no, we didn't know that. Yeah, go down. I bet you can meet him. So Kelsey drives down, petrified. And on the way down, you know, sometimes if you're a little scared, you can put parameters around things and tell the Lord you'll only do things in a certain way and hope that perhaps those things won't happen. And that's what she did. She said, Lord, I'll talk to him, but I don't want any any other customers there. I want to have just a few minutes with this guy by myself. Never mind that the bookstore is on Pennsylvania Avenue. It's noon, and it's between the only restaurants within walking distance to Capitol Hill. So she said, you know, she thinks she's pretty safe. She parks our truck. She walks to the bookstore. She walks in. She looks around. There is the senator sitting there. Yep, looks just like he did on the Internet. There's his uh, big security guy with the earpiece in. There is a cameraman. And there is um, one customer who leaves. <laughs> so she buys the book. She walks up to him. And uh, the man with the camera is there with the news. He says, do you mind if I film you? She said, Yes, shut that off. <laughs> Security guy moves a little closer to the senator. <laughs> he signs the book and she said, Sir, can I give you something? <laughs> Literally, he said, Yeah, if it doesn't blow up. <laughs> she hands him an index card with a verse on it. She said, Sir, I had a dream about you. It's about your stand for Israel. And this is a verse we pray for you and your family every day. You are on our hearts. We're praying for protection. Tears roll up in his eyes. He grabs his, her hand. He says, thank you, thank you, thank you. She turns around and walks out, and I can imagine him looking at a security guard. Who was that? I'm thinking, that was my wife. <laughs> How did she get in that position? Because she searches the scriptures for hours, and she pours her heart out to God for some hint of the times that we live in. And even though she only got a little snippet of it, it was way more than anybody else that maybe he had met that day. Friends, this is the reality of the church at the end of the age. Influence that will go far beyond reason because you will have insight into the times. If you get a morsel of revelation for yourself, you're going to stand out like a genius at the end of the age. There's, and there's a flood of revelation coming, even as it's being put into place. Now there's a man in the front row holding up numbers. I don't know what he means. No, I know what he means. It means I'm out of time. I thought I was on Star Search for a minute. I wasn't doing very well either. The numbers were very low. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to close out just because many of you have places to go. But I want to just leave you with this. Some of you even now are being positioned for a place of influence at the end of the age. You think you're just doing life and it is completely a divine setup for you. You are pursuing a degree that you think will put dinner on the table. And in reality, it will put you into a key role at the end of the age to speak to kings. 
The funny thing is you thought it was your area of interest. Where do you think that interest came from? God planted it in your heart. You are being set up. Enjoy the ride. Some of you are doing things as mundane as you're buying a house. And you think you bought it because you like the school district and you like the color. But God is placing you next to a family that needs you. And you will have insight and you will have inroads into their life when the economy collapses and you're able to minister to them. God is placing you in that area of influence. You think you're just doing life. Some of you are digging deep into the scriptures late at night. You sit up and you read and you write and you look and you study this omega stuff and you go, there's got to be something to it. And everybody around you looks at you like you have a third eyeball. You go, what do you even care? Some of your leaders have said, why do you even care? And the truth is, at the end of the age, you will instruct many because of the work that you have done on this side of that day. The age we are stepping into will be one of simultaneous glory and terror. And what it is for you depends greatly on how you are posturing your heart and your mind in relation to the end times. Bow your heads with me for a moment. Father, I thank you for a group of, of hundreds of people who voted today with their presence and said, God, we want to know what you are saying when our time comes. So God, I pray a spirit of revelation on this group that you would reward them according to the time they spend in the scriptures that you would give them nuggets of truth, nuggets of insight, God, and that you would provide them with the avenue, Lord, on your day, in that simultaneous day of glory and terror, that they would be wise and they would instruct many. They would be mighty men, mighty women. They would do great exploits for the glory of your name. God, it is truly our desire to see your fame on the earth. We have heard of your fame. We've heard of your deeds. God, would you renew them in our day, and would you use us, God? In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.